This is a podcast from WSUM. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Welcome back to another asynchronous edition of After Further Review, coming to you from the WSUM production studio. This show is hosted by myself, Alexander Schuster, and Vincent Hesperick, excuse me, sitting next to me. Glad you got my name correctly there. Yep, uh, great to be here. Usually I'd ask you how you're doing, but this is actually try number two. Uh, we, we, we got into a great conversation. Looks like we weren't recording. However, we're, we're back at it, and this is going to give us a more nuanced opinion for the first part of it. Yeah, we, we got the first trial run out of the way. I uh, got a little bit of time talking about my eye cut out of there, but that's <laughs> all right. I mean, I guess we may as well quick add that we weren't sure if we were actually going to be able to record today because Alex got something stuck in his eyeball, but thankfully he's okay. He's playing through pain right now. I've I can see the tears flowing down him right now, but he's he's hanging in there and he's ready to go. Yeah, I, I'm got an eye patch on. I'm, I'm looking like a pirate right now. <laughs> send me out to send me out to sea. Um, so we'll just go straight into it. Uh, rate my take. Uh, I had already lost uh, the coin toss, so yeah. I guess um, we should quick say for people who aren't aware, rate my take is where Alex and I come in with opinions. We came ahead of time about sports, and then we have the other person grade them. Uh, we flipped a coin to decide who goes first, and Alex lost the coin toss, so he had to go first. And uh, I'm going to pretend like I have no idea what he's about to say. So go ahead, Alex. Wembenyama is going to be a bust. <laughs> <laughs> Just doesn't hit the second it, time it around. It doesn't. Um, but. Uh, I'll try one more time. So Wembenyama is going to be a bust. What? Oh my god. So I'm basing this off of or I'm not basing this off of his performance in the summer league, but just more so off the extent that people have gone to hype him up. Um I just think it's completely unrealistic to accept him expect him to be an all time great player, but that's exactly what he's been hyped up to be uh for over a year. Um and my expectations for him is just to be a good but not great player. Um and with the level that he's been hyped up to, I think that qualifies him to be considered a bust if he's not an all-time great player. All right, well, I guess I, I can't get as, as mad as I did before. You did say something that you didn't say before. You said you expect him to be a good, not great player. So can you give me a, a modern example of what kind of player you think he'll be, just in terms of purely production? Um, I think his, like, what we should expect, like, if not... I don't want to like say it as his ceiling, but like I mean, his ceiling could be like what they hyped him up to be. Like that is the level of like all-time great player, uh, like fantastic in the league forever. Like that is his ceiling, but I think you shouldn't expect that from him from the jump. You wait a couple years into his career and then start putting that on him. Um, and I think maybe like a DeAndre Ayton or something like that, where like. He's he's a good, not great player in the league. He's someone that you recognize, but at the same time, you're not putting him in that upper echelon. If he and if he is at that level, I think that would be a bust compared to how they've hyped him up. Wow. Well, I, I will say you did modify your take, however, that is fair because I did get really mad at you and start yelling. Um, it I, did I, sound ridiculous when I was saying it, but I, that was part of that's the what you're going was, for. Yeah, though. exactly. Yeah. And now I I kind of started to agree with myself more with like not doing it as much of a joke take and now like i think i can really back it up here okay uh so uh, before you said that if he's not a top 25 player of all time he'll be considered a bust that i disagreed with however and with the hype that has been placed on him i think that if he because you would not call deandre ayton a bust right obviously i'm sure they would take the pick back if they could considering that luka Dantish was available 
but Aiton wasn't hyped up to that level. I think that was a draft where people weren't really. Yeah, they weren't sure he was going to be number one overall. Yeah, and he's you know even he gets criticized quite a bit. He's still a productive player that teams are interested in trading for. Yeah, as a, a, like a, a third player on their team, maybe second player on their exactly. team. Exactly. Well, I, I wouldn't say second, but yeah, I, <laughs> I, I I would agree with you. So if if he were to hype, if Wemby were to hypothetically play at the level of Aiton, I would. I think that would classify as a bust. Now I'll go back to I'll rehash what I was a couple of things I was saying before about how the amount of hype that has been placed on him has been uh, more than I've seen from a college or not college basketball a collegiate basketball player. However, like I said before, I mean LeBron James's games were put on ESPN. It was like a, a whole national thing. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated when that was a a big deal. <laughs> um, but with Wembenyama, the way we're, we're kind of seeing him is purely through his highlights. So. I told Alex before there was a clip that went viral of him trying a step back three and missing, but he gets his own putback and slams it for a dunk. He takes just two steps inside, boom, it's a slam dunk. And people think that's going to be, or people who do think that that's going to be a common occurrence, probably are the people who haven't seen his full games, which is fair because it's hard to watch French league games going on right now. However, as a day-to-day player, he did shoot 27.5% from three. He would average a tick more than 20 points per game, although I believe that their scoring is a little bit different there just in terms of how long the game is. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say that the people saying that he's the next LeBron or that he's a better prospect than LeBron, that's people who are setting him up to fail. So I, I would agree that the pressure on him is very high and it would be incredibly difficult for him to – meet these expectations placed on him that being said calling him a bust is just ridiculous and in my opinion i could be wrong but i was i've watched a little bit of summer league and obviously you can't get a ton of stuff from summer league both ben simmons and markel fultz were showing off jumpers when they were in summer league which they are now notoriously known for not having one but there's just plays where i don't know how you can possibly stop what he brings to the table there's one play where he was matched up on a forward in the post and it's like he took a a step back, and he had like one foot almost on the free throw line. It looked like he was going to try a fadeaway. And then he spins all the way back, and with that one step, he can go from almost the foul line to right at the basket. Where he's just such a finesse player. The, the way I look at NBA centers is sometimes you can say, oh, well, he's not going to be dominant in the post because he's not big and strong like Shaq. I mean, Wemby is incredibly skinny, probably I'd say skinnier than Kevin Durant. But I almost look at NBA centers like you would NFL running backs, where I guess you'd call Shaq a big power player or a big power running back in, in terms of NFL. You could say a guy like Hakeem Olajuwon was like Walter Payton. He had the great footwork but also had some power. But saying that Wembenyama can't be a great post player because he's small or because he's skinny is like saying that Barry Sanders can't be a good running back because he doesn't run people over. He dominates the game in his own different way, and that way is not traditional, but that doesn't mean it can't work at all. So I, I personally I don't think he's going to come in and – destroy the league like some say he will i if i actually had to bet although i don't bet i think chet holmgren's going to be the rookie of the year this year that being said i'm still incredibly excited to see what victor Wembanyama brings to the table so with your new modified take i'll give you a, a, a six out of ten I, I respect your opinion however i do hate you slightly for what you did to me the first recording where you kept trying to get me mad and it worked very well well so what i was saying in the first one was like i was setting the bar a little bit too high for what the take really yeah. should have been um and it it would have made a good like espn soundbite honestly of um just something to throw out there but i i think it's kind of fair to like say that with the level of hype that they brought to him like 
I, uh, something that I forgot to mention earlier is like they literally brought out a camera for the NBA lottery and were doing interviews with Wembenyama after the Spurs when we found out the Spurs had the number one overall pick and we're interviewing him seeing how he felt about going to San Antonio because everyone just knew exactly that he was gonna be the number one overall pick and I'm pretty sure this is one of the better draft uh classes at least for prospects for the, the top of the draft where there's like oh yeah even the middle yeah like, there's there's all sorts of great players but yeah I, I love your point you said there where he, he basically hijacked the lottery although I'm, it's not like he's like bring the cameras and talk to me it was just like espn made him the focal point because he has all these expectations put on him so living up to these expectations i will say gonna be very tough so six out of ten i'll take it i'll take it i i, I really wish we had I, it, it was on my like my fault for not pressing that little red button there but i wish we had that original tape of it because that was probably one of our best like little five minutes of like your instant reaction <laughs> Because it, it was just so subtle from the introduction to the spend, boom, like Wemby's a bust. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. I'm disappointed too. <laughs> All right. Uh, is it okay if I go ahead then? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. All right. Ironically enough, I have a Spurs take as well. Um, however, some news broke recently that Greg Popovich, the longtime coach of the Spurs, was signed to a five-year deal worth $80 million, which is quite a bit of money. This, I don't want to say resets the coaching market, but... It's, he's the highest paid coach by a somewhat wide margin. And now there's a lot of people who are saying that it's a great deal, and then there's some people saying that this is a terrible decision. And that they, I feel like that the people who aren't a fan of re-signing Pop fall into either two camps, either A, he's too old, or B, we're not even sure if he's a great coach anymore. So I decided to look back and see if I could poke some holes in this argument because Greg Popovich is my favorite NBA coach ever, and I wanted to try and figure out if I can – make a convincing case. So I guess right now, yes, he is old. He's 74 years old right now, which makes him the, not just the oldest NBA coach right now, but the oldest NBA coach in the history of the sport. However, I look around not just basketball, but leagues as a whole. I mean, who would you say is the best NFL coach right now? Bill Belichick. Oh, well, I actually would. Well, I'd say uh, Andy Reid personally, but I, I, I would agree with you there. You I almost think helped like my argument the, even more there. Yeah, that's yeah. what we'll, I mean, Bill Belichick, I think, is, like, active and, like, over his career. It's hard not to, but I would agree that there is kind of, like, a, a changing of the guard there. Yeah, but we're just calling it a changing of the guard. Andy Reid is 65 years old right now. I mean, I, I, a lot of people I know are retiring at 65. It looks like Andy Reid's going to would love to go for a long time, and I don't see why not. I mean, you partner him with Mahomes, he's hitting his prime right exactly. now. <laughs> and we talk about Belichick, who's 71 right now, and even though last year was a— a failure, but let's just think about how a guy with an incredibly untalented team with no offensive weapons whatsoever, led by a defensive coordinator at offensive coordinator, mind you, a defensive coordinator who wasn't even good as a defensive <laughs> coordinator, and yet the Patriots still came one win away from making the playoffs in a loaded AFC with Bailey Zappi getting legitimate time at quarterback. So I'd say that he's still hanging on pretty well. And not to mention the last World Series manager was Dusty Baker, who was teammates with Hank Aaron. He's 74 years old. And I feel like even just outside of sports, just take a step back. In society as a whole, we're seeing people who are older still being active and stuff. Like, you know, David Attenborough, the 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 the, the animal documentary guy, is like, oh, yes, the swimming fish is in the water right now. It makes it sound cool. He's 97. He's still going on the trips with the documentary crews and doing stuff. Um, there's all sorts of people who are still involved in stuff. Harrison Ford uh, it just did Indiana Jones, which I could talk about that quite a bit, but 
it's just impressive to see how people who are older are still getting involved with stuff. Now, to be fair, there are people who have held on too long who should retire, and there's an argument to be made that Pop is in that group. After all, the Spurs have been very dreadful the past couple of years, capping it off in this last year where they won 22 games. However, when I look at the Spurs roster, I'm not saying that the players that they have aren't talented, but when you compare them to the other teams that were the seller of the league, they had far and away fewer talent than the others. Like you look at the Pistons, but Boyan or Bogdan Bog, Boyan, right? Boyan Bogdanovich. Yeah, he was a he's a legitimate player that teams wanted to trade for. And he wound up getting a four year deal in the Pistons because he was such a lights out shooter on the year. He was legitimately very good to start the year. Any all thirty teams would love him on their team. Not to mention they have a ton of high picks. We'll jump to Houston, who was also terrible. They had Jalen Green. They had all sorts of talent. Alfred Sengun would be the Spurs' best player. Even the Hornets. with Lamelo was hurt most of the year, but they still had P.J. Washington, Miles Bridges, legitimate players. Also, Gordon Hayward's not too bad either. And you look at the Spurs, who I guess the best way I could sum up their talent level on their team right now is that the Bucks waived Sandru Mamukavalic-Vishi, I think is how you say his name. Basically, he was not playing whatsoever for the Bucks at all. He was not in the rotation at all. He was a young player, so they gave him a chance to go somewhere else. He was a starter down the stretch for the Spurs. You take a guy who couldn't even make the roster on the Bucks is a starting player on the Spurs. And yet, this is a Spurs team that showed signs of resembling the old Spurs way. They were still top 10 in the league in assists, almost top 10 in personal fouls per game. And not to mention, they beat the Nuggets and basically put a, a, a stamp on Joel Embiid's MVP um, candidacy by doing so. So uh, another thing that would make me think that Pop is still good to go for a couple more years is that there's an idea that he can't adapt since the Spurs didn't shoot too many threes this year. I'd argue that they also they just didn't have guys who could shoot threes this year. Yeah, they, they just got rid of Derek White and DeAndre uh, Murray. or uh, like Who'd they give to Atlanta? Yeah, uh, I think you got it there. Yeah. Yeah, so... Or DeJounte Murray. DeJounte. That, exactly. I knew I said it wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I was there to correct <laughs> Uh, but, but we'll just take a, a look back at the history of the Spurs. Uh, Pop became the coach in 1997, and the very next year uh, his team won the championship in the 90s, and it was back to the basket, give the ball to the big man, let him dominate down low. Tim Duncan and David Robinson were leading the way. But then you t- t- take it to the 2000s. The game's about slashing point guards, mid-range shots. They win three finals. Then you jump to the 2010s. The pacing explodes. The spacing explodes. The three-point shot becomes a big thing. The Spurs tragically lost to the Heat. They basically, I think you could say choked is the way to go. They come back the next year, and they beat the Heat in five in the largest margin of victory in NBA history. So you could say, well, I don't know if he he can adapt because he's so old. I'd say he can adapt, and the proof of that is because he is so old. I mean, he's doing pretty well. I'm not saying the Spurs are going to come in and be instant contenders. I'm just saying that any coach would be happy to have Greg Popovich on their team, even though he is 74 years old. I think we need to trim that up because that's the uh, perfect anti-age discrimination I had right Thank you. there. Yes. I love it. I mean, you ever, like, I mean, young people, I feel like for the most part, like, they like to think they have all the answers and, like, you come up with, like, new creative ways to do things. But sometimes, like, having the person that's been there and, like, seen it and, like, can have any situation come up in front of them and they're like, oh, yeah, like, this happened, like, back in – like 76 like i know it like they they have like no matter what comes up they have experienced it before yeah at least pop for the has seen part. stuff <laughs> yeah like he knows what's going on and 
as the game has adapted, like you you grow with it, and I I, I would doubt that someone that loves the game as a basketball as much as him wouldn't be able to stay up to date with it. So I, I think that's a perfect take. Uh, like or not not quite perfect. Um, yeah, th- there were some stutters yeah, in there. You, you well, can shut me down. I'll, I'll give you a nine point five. Wow, that's it, very generous. Because there, I, I don't think there is a perfect take, but I I don't get why anyone would want to like, hate on Pop. Like if you look at his resume, like he is a fantastic coach when he has the right players, and his the entire organization made it completely obvious they didn't want to win, and he was the absolute best at that as well. So whatever their goal <laughs> is, he accomplishes it 110% of the way so I mean he's one of my favorite guys partially because of like the lack of him talking makes it even funnier like answer was one question like the interviews are just amazing if you even get one like yeah I I just I love pop so uh, I love the take as well all right yeah I I think um I I saw that there were like evidence for him kind of falling off that he drove Kawhi Leonard away but it's like I mean Kawhi Leonard if you remember his uncle, he he, the, the, he would not let the team see how injured he was. He was getting the information was going through Kawhi's uncle, and the Spurs said, "Well, heck with this, we're we're done with him." And although the trade package for Demar Derozan, Jakob Pertl, and two firsts didn't wind up getting them a ton in the end, you could argue they made the right decision moving on from him. Because when you look at, he had the one great year with the Raptors, but now, like ever since then, it's just been never know when he's going to play, not showing up in the playoffs. Yeah, with some of the guys we've seen. Uh, like the off the court issues in the NBA in recent years, it's hard to say that he's like one of the most like oh yeah, I just players, mean in, but in he's pure up there. basketball. Yeah. yeah, he's unreliable. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's a weird, the other weird part is you just don't know anything about his social life too. Like he's one of the biggest like mysteries in the NBA. And well, I'm cool with him being a mystery. Like yeah. Tim Duncan was a total mystery as well. It's just that he showed up and he did. He wasn't a mystery to the people who needed to know where he was. And Kawhi was, he's almost AWOL sometimes. (laughs) I feel like that's just, like, kind of a trend now in the NBA of, like, players that, like, I don't know, like Kyrie, and, like, you just kind of, like, go off and do your own thing. It's like, I don't know. Yeah, I hope it doesn't. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll jump to a, what are we calling it, Badger Sports Update? Um, We'll we'll figure out a name at some point. We'll change that later. Uh, So... As we said before, there's, or as we said last week, there's not really a ton of sports going on here. I mean, not really any. I mean, none whatsoever. However, there are a couple of things we'd love to talk about. Uh, I guess we could talk about the recruiting class update. I believe uh, the football team is is currently ranked 40 in the class. They have a 27th ranked transfer class. That's been a big part of what Luke Fickle has brought. And you said, uh, is there any games you're excited, looking forward to, to watch next year? Well, I think the biggest one that I'm excited for, and it kind of uh, partners in with a NFL weekend as well, but uh, we play Ohio State on Saturday at home, and then we have the Vikings the next day at home uh, against oh. the Packers. <laughs> so that, that can either be a, an amazing or a horrible weekend right there, but I am kind of excited to see that one. Um, what about yourself? Like any any big games for the I'm excited to see to. the Illinois game obviously Ohio State's the big one everyone's talking about but mm-hmm. Illinois was kind of the unofficial end of the traditional way that the Wisconsin Badgers go about their business they just got completely wiped by the by Illinois who's whose coach was a former coach of the Badgers 
And I remember just hearing afterwards, I was listening to it on the radio, and and uh, Paul Chris was like, yeah, I guess we'll just come back the next week. Uh, I guess we'll just have to make some changes. And then next day, he's gone in a pretty shocking move. So I'm excited. This will be the official uh, tape measure of how improved the Badger team has really been. Yeah, I, I guess it's kind of a, a chance outside of Badger sports update, maybe Big Ten sports update. Like, are there any other, like, Maybe teams that don't play the Badgers in the Big Ten that you're excited for, like no. college football, not no. at all. No, well, I, I think that's <laughs> fair. Tried. I mean, it's biggest rivals, but I mean, at the end of the season, you do want to see like in bowl games and everything like that. There's got to be, you got to root for the Big Ten there. But uh, what about basketball? Any any matchups you're excited for again next year? I mean, there's always like Michigan against Wisconsin. You, you want to see that, but. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm just trying to find a way to, to relate this back to Wisconsin sports. There's just <laughs> nothing to talk about here, but we might uh, just have to move on. I guess I'm really excited to see them play Ohio State. Uh, obviously, Michigan will be the one I'm looking for because Hunter Dickinson basically oh, ended my hopes and dreams last he, year. Did he transfer out, though? Yes, he did. Yeah. But it, it's just still the, the, the rivalry, I'd say, is still there. Feelings definitely hurt. But Ohio State, I would argue, is almost as heartbreaking where the Badgers were completely, I mean, just that game for the Big Ten where they just could not score a basket whatsoever and they just fell apart. And then it's like they started to come back and make it close just to fall apart right at the end. I'd love to see if this, I think that'd be another good measuring stick to see if this team has changed or overcame some of its issues. I think it's funny that like that description of that game right there you could just use that for almost any of our games last season and that kind of fits (laughs) for at least for some stretch of the game there like usually in the second half there would just be a slow period so I'm I I can't wait for it to be back just to all the games and everything again the summer's nice but I'm ready for football yeah exactly basketball team currently the 34th ranked class in the nation which is great because last year Connor Cesian was our only recruit and he even greatly exceeded the expectations so that I I would have to think will be a a touch better even though that's a a low bar to clear I'd have to say real quick about softball uh the I I love Badger softball so much and they 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 were dealt a, a, a devastating blow they lost Peyton Monticelli to she's transferring to Oklahoma. She was basically supposed to be the next ace after uh, Big Ten Pitcher of the Year, Maddie Schwartz, is leaving. So I also want to spring this on you, Alex, because I, I want to get you in the booth for a game of softball next year. I'd love for you to commit to that right here. I'm so scared to do it. Just that I'm the worst with baseball knowledge, as we proved uh, during our live shows. Can we do? Can we do one at the end of the season? Maybe like just sure. a, a yeah, midday, on like a, a Tuesday or something like that, or just we'll, we'll low, make it happen. But low, yeah, anyway, low I'll, viewership numbers, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I, I just I, I hope to see people there. I'm usually behind home plate in the little table with the, our, our machines set up there, so it doesn't matter if I'm talking. Just tap me on the shoulder, and I'll look upset, and then you can look upset at me because I told you to do it. So, all right, should we uh, jump ahead to our next segment here? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, we got our likes and dislikes. Um, I mean, we had a, a a bit of an extended uh, break in between our shows, so a little bit more time uh, for us to add to our list. Um, for me, I'll I'll go first here. Um, my likes, McLaren's new upgrade package. Uh, they brought uh, last or 
now it would be two weeks ago, uh, to Austria. Uh, McLaren finally upgraded their car. Uh, fantastic upgrades, taking them from literally the back of the grid all the way up to the front. Um, and then this past weekend, they were able to start and lead for five laps uh, at the uh, British Grand Prix, their home race. So that got just a huge roar from the crowd. Um, and it was just fantastic to see someone kind of, I mean, and also my favorite team rival, uh, Max Verstappen and Red Bull, even if it was for five <laughs> laps. Uh, Lando Norris ended up finishing second, but um, there was a, a good moment after the race between uh, him and Max, who kind of knew his second place finish was basically like a first place finish. Yeah. So he let him sit in his like first place, like in, in the backstage seats. It was like the the chair labeled number one. Uh, so he got a big grin from that, and I was just I was unfortunately working at the time, but listening to that race and then watching it afterwards was just amazing. And the like Formula One still is exciting to me. It's tough when. I started getting into it at a time where it was like everyone was starting to be competitive. Like Mercedes was like everyone has to take them off, and then just instantly that there's a new Mercedes and it's just Red Bull completely dominating everything. Um, but at the same time, I'm just too far in to stop watching, even if I know exactly what's going to happen <laughs> every time now. Um, and I'm, I'm still loving it though. Um, also, like was watching the Brewers come back against the Cubs at the game. Um, yeah, you went to a Brewer game despite your yep. hatred of all things baseball. I It's starting to grow on me. I think watching as many games as possible in person is the way to get me uh, into it. it. I mean, the, the atmosphere in person at a game is so much better. And, I mean, there's nothing really else for you to do but just sit and enjoy the game. Yeah, you were there, there July so. 3rd where the Brewers yep. came back from six runs down to pull off the comeback. I'm glad you weren't there the next day when the Brewers promptly – choked big time against the cubs oh my gosh uh, yeah i'm i mean i g- gave them all the encouragement i could exactly I mean, we had to get you out there for the july 4 game did you happen to catch that one at all or i did okay not if you did. Uh, okay i was i was out on the lake that day nice well yeah. basically uh the brewers had runners at the corners and in extra innings with uh just one out oh no, no oh gosh no they had a runner on second with with one out um and what winds up happening is they get a base hit and they send the runner home. The guy in second's coming home, and he winds up getting thrown out at the plate, even though there was one out still, and he could have just stayed on third, and they would have tried to get him in a different way. And then the guy on first tried to take off for second base, and he got thrown out as well. So on a base hit, the Cubs got a double play. It was a, a true tragedy to watch. I had some mean things to say to my television, but the Brewers uh, still just one game out of first, so can't be too upset with how they're done. Yeah, I'm. well, I see... As another one of your dislikes, I mean, it it was a great <laughs> highlight, but knowing that it was against the Brewers, it just makes me not never want to see the clip again. But we'll, we'll um, jump to that when we okay get to um, my part. So again, going oh, going back to my uh, Brewers game experience, one of the weirdest things it was kind of a dislike, and just the first inning might have been the fastest first inning I've ever seen. Um, I think it was like less than five minutes and it was like the first inning was over. At least that's what it felt like. Um, so the nine dogs and nine inning, excuse me, the nine dogs, nine in- innings challenge. I think it's impossible now. <laughs> I mean, they sped up the pace of play, which is awesome. But for for those of you who want to eat nine hot dogs and Dude, okay. watch a baseball game, <sighs> it's not possible anymore. And I don't know if I'd be brave enough to try it, but 
me and my brother were joking, are we doing nine dogs, nine innings before we were walking in? And then we sat down, watched the first inning, and looked over at each other and were like, this, it's not possible. Like, even if we wanted to try it, there's no way you can actually eat nine hot dogs in nine innings when the game's going that fast. It well, would I already think Joey be Chestnut would have something to say okay. to that. But a, a, a I, I normal, normal, human, normal human being, not a professional eater. I've been to enough ballpark games that when I hear nine hot dogs and nine innings, my first thought is not how do you eat that many hot dogs. My first thought is how are you going to get enough money to afford buying nine hot dogs at American Family Field? Well, that's part of the reason why we didn't do it. Yeah, we ten left. bucks a piece. I can't believe it. Ridiculous. That's when you <laughs> make a, a, a jacket. Just dogs in every pocket. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sounds like a good move. <laughs> oh, that would be so gross. Oh, gosh. Well, I guess it's okay if I go ahead. Yeah, then. go ahead. I don't want to get that out of my yeah, head now. I think that's a great uh, way For to likes, I put nothing. Uh, I mm-hmm. do not like anything that's going on whatsoever. For dislikes, though, uh, I just I talked about the Brewers messing up against the Cubs, but that was the second most embarrassing thing I've seen the Brewers do in the past week. Against the Reds the other day, uh, Ellie De La Cruz did something that has, hasn't been done in the last 50 years. I don't think it's ever been done ever, actually. He stole second base. Actually, he was down 0-2 in the count. Uh, the Reds had a guy on third in a tie game. He winds up getting a hit, which gives his team the lead. He then steals second um, after one pitch. Then he steals third with no throw at all. And if the fans start, you could hear him like booing a little bit because he just let a guy go from hitting a, a short single to getting on third base <laughs> just like that. And then no one covers third base, and the catcher just kind of looks disgruntled. So Cruz just takes off for home and steals it easily. He stole third and home in the same pitch, and I thought the the booing was loud before, but it was a I thought a mob was going to break out or something after that. It was just the most embarrassing display of baseball I've seen this year, and it was a really big deal too. I looked up uh, the Brewer news, and that was the first article it showed up. I looked up MLB news, that was the first article it showed up. I looked up sports news, and I still found articles about what he did. So he did something historic, and the Brewers were historically terrible as a result. They wound up losing that game. Yeah, he's a really young player too, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he he just got called up uh, a couple weeks ago. But yeah, he's been unbelievable. It, it stinks because the Reds are such a fun young team that if they weren't the biggest rival of my hometown team, I'd probably love them a lot. But I can't. So it, if they just pulled him up, he's probably on just a, a tiny contract then right now. Yeah, he's he's playing for the cheap. But a lot of times, what they do is if a player has a really uh, great rookie year. They'll give him a long-term deal right away just to secure him, and then sometimes he'll wind up being unbelievable, and he winds up making a discount. So uh, interesting to see what happens because he's he's definitely going to get paid based off of what we're seeing oh, right yeah. now. Uh, next up for my second dislike, uh, I saw there, there's been a, a plethora of suspensions around the NFL due to gambling issues. Uh, we've seen a, I mean, obviously Calvin Ridley's a big one, but now we've seen uh, – a bunch more players, a lot of them wound up being cut as a result. And uh, th- this was a little bit ago, but Jonathan Jones, a player for the Patriots, he w- went to social media to voice his frustrations. He said, I understand rules are rules, but I can risk my life so that my team wins, but I can't risk $1,000 on my team winning. And I'd say in some ways he has a point. I mean, he, we talk about how, well, I mean, football, you're not going to die out there. No one's dying. Well, we watched what DeMar what happened to DeMar Hamlin, that was very scary. But even if you say it's an isolated incident, you can look at the stats and see that NFL players aren't living as long as normal people, and they deserve to be compensated for that. That being said, they do get their compensation through being paid millions of dollars to play in the NFL. 
So and also the revenue from gambling on the NFL, I think they they make money off that already. Like people being able to gamble on it on the NFL, I think they make mo- like money from that as well. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow, but it basically it, it and have letting players uh, gamble in the league just seems to be a terrible idea. Unfortunately, it seems like a lot are partaking in it. Now, I also saw that 90% of the NFL players were unaware of the gambling policy, which I'd say is a strike against the NFL more than the players. I mean, you got to make sure people know what they can and can't do. That being said, though, the fact that people are willing to risk their million-dollar salaries on some bets about their team is a little discouraging to see. I feel like that even though some of the players who ultimately got suspended didn't know that they're violating the policy, I'd rather be safe than sorry. Like right now we're doing a, a summer recording on WSUM. We're not sure if we're, there's certain rules that are in place that when we're on the air during fall, we can't say certain stuff, which is obviously very fair. During the summer, we're not exactly sure what those rules are. But instead of taking risks and saying stuff we shouldn't, we just do what we usually do and play it as is because – we're not going to take needless risks and then wind up getting thrown out of the radio. <laughs> so I just feel like that players should be playing is a lot more safe and I just letting players because, okay, so they say that if you have insider knowledge on gambling, that's obviously illegal. This is basically pretty close because you can say, well, maybe my team doesn't win, but let's just say your coach is okay. Well, this team's bad against the run. We're going to make sure we run it like crazy. Every single player we're going to feed our guys. If you're betting on the over-under for rushing yards, I'd say that's a pretty unfair advantage. Oh, 100%. Like, people want to be able to say, oh, like a boxer, you should be able to bet on yourself to win. Like, that's a normal thing. Like, every fight in boxing, you're allowed to, like, bet on yourself, and most fighters do it, okay? But in the NFL, like, what about, the like, the fight that you don't, or the the game you don't bet on yourself. Exactly. Then. Like, what does that mean? So you bet on yourself seven weeks in a row, then you take two off. Like, <laughs> then like you just don't do it at all. It's the, the simplest way to like solve all these issues of and concerns from people of like other gamblers. They're not gonna like want a player to be in debt or, or just say, oh, like let me bet the under on myself and I'm just gonna take the day off or something like ridiculous <laughs> like that. Like, obviously someone shouldn't do that and probably wouldn't. But then the one time it happens, everyone's going to blow up on that. And it causes more issues by letting players gamble. And I think they should be able to gamble on other sports because, I mean, you get just as much of an advantage as uh, if, I mean, there's a little bit of an advantage. Maybe you're friends with like other athletes in another sport and you get like insider info that way. But so does all that guy's friends. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't see the difference between that. As long as it's not the sport that they're actively playing in, I think it's all right. Like, if you want to bet on tennis or whatever i mean you shouldn't but if the nfl wants to ban that i wouldn't have a problem with that either but yeah well i mean i I guess i can't really give a fully informed decision on this because i'm i i I do not gamble on sports frankly we did a a mock draft once and i only got one pick out of the 31 in the first round so clearly i shouldn't gamble but i I just think that the the players who got suspended i think that that's a a complete mess up on their part they have no one to blame but themselves unfortunately yeah and for the most part it it, i'm it sounds like they weren't placing like absurd amounts of money at all but i mean you never know like it it probably is one of those things that that's what it starts out as yeah it's not about the amount it's about the concept yeah jonathan jones said well why can't we just bet on ourselves to win then it's like well still do you want to how are you going to track that you want to have the league do a bunch of that's what your incentives yeah, you and your contract to... are for <laughs> like you that's put that in point. there and it's like that's what you're betting on yourself okay? that's the like, form of betting yes yeah, i like, want to see <laughs> i want to see more of that i'll 
players gambling on how much money they'll make in their contract. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You want to gamble? <laughs> okay. We'll sign you to like a forty-two million dollar contract, and then put but all if you these. You get fourteen hundred yards. You get eight million. But if you yeah. get less than fourteen hundred yards, you <laughs> lose ten million. <laughs> I don't know. That'd every be kind of exciting, actually. Every yard under a thousand is minus a million dollars. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> You're just paying them money. <laughs> oh man, player gets hurt. Like, oh, this is it. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I guess we'll, we'll jump on to our our next segment here. Uh, I guess this was a little bit ago, but NBA free agency is wrapping up. We have some off season moves, and we thought we'd give out some some grades what we've liked about the off season. Uh, you you want to start this one off? Um. Yeah, sure. How how do you want to go through this here? Do you oh, want to I just guess. throw out teams and then we can just give out their grade? Well, why don't we go through winners and losers okay. first here? Um, I guess if I if you want me to jump ahead here first. Yeah, you can go for it. Now, the, the Rockets dished out loads and loads of money. Um, they got Fred Van Fleet for three years, $130 million. They also got... Uh, Dylan Brooks for four years, close to 80. I guess that contract's not fully guaranteed. They can't move off of it. But I see people defending this. Like, well, I mean, Fred Van Vliet, he's a very good defender. He was a good team player for the Raptors. And Dylan Brooks, despite the fact he was a walking meme, he was also an all-defensive player. So I went through the Rockets' starting lineup in my head. This is probably what they're going to be looking like based off of what I've seen, both from beat writers and national writers. And um, so they'll have Fred Van Vliet at point guard, They'll have Jalen Green at shooting guard, Dylan Brooks at small forward, Jabari Parker at power forward, and Alfred Sengun at center. So what I decided to do is I looked at those names and I thought those guys are pretty inefficient. So I brought up the NBA's effective field goal percentage leaders. Effective field goal percentage is field goal percentage, except a three-point shot counts as a make and a half, basically to reflect the fact that even though I think uh, when Russell Westbrook, his first year with the Lakers, um, he shot. He had a technically a better field goal percentage than Steph Curry. However, Steph Curry takes a ton of threes and he makes them. Therefore, he's a better shooter. The stat reflects it. So I sorted out of 123 qualified players. Fred Van Fleet had the 12th lowest effective field goal percentage. Jalen Green had the 10th lowest. Dylan Brooks had the 4th lowest. And Jabari Parker had the 5th lowest effective field goal percentage across the entire league among qualified players. Alfred Sengun, who I think is a very good player, he was just about average. Um, but So they're saying, well, we're, we're paying guys, we're getting defense, and we know that they can be great offensively. It's like, well, you don't pay guys for what they can do. You pay guys for what they are right now. You start paying guys what you can do. That's how you get the the all-time bad deals that we've seen before. So, And especially the old player, too, like the guy that, that's – Probably like Van yeah, Van Fleet, Fleet's having decline. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, Dylan Brooks. I mean, everyone made the memes that he's going to China and like out of the NBA. Like he's not going. Nobody's going to want to pick him up. But I, I think. I mean, he deserves to be in the league, but I don't think he deserves that contract. Yeah, but I mean, if we're going to talk about winners and losers, how about winner as Dylan Brooks? I mean, oh, we, we yeah. <laughs> good for him. He's looks like if he's able to play through this whole contract, he's going to be quite a bit richer, even though. He literally had his former team go out and leak that they are not going to resign him. <laughs> Just immediately, too. Like, yeah. Not, was it even a week after the. It was pretty game? close to yeah. immediately after. Wow. It's a way to do that. I think. Um, do you want to keep going with losers here? Or sure. Winners go, or? go ahead, Alex. Um, one of my losers that I had was the Celtics. I just didn't really understand why they wanted Porzingis. Um, that's not really a player that I expected anyone to be. I mean, he had a good year last year, but they got rid of Marcus Smart, who seemed to be like one of the only like really gritty players on their team. 
and then like he was like the lifeblood of their team was a little bit on the decline but at the same time like he like he's kind of the heart and soul of the Celtics um and then they bring in Kristaps Porzingis who's just a really inconsistent player at a position where they already have old and inconsistent players already there so I didn't think that was the best move I understand why they got rid of uh, Marcus Smart but at the same time like Ben bringing in Porzingis I didn't think was really the like the right direction to go in yeah that's fair um yeah so I I, I wouldn't say like they're the biggest loser but I would have them like in that category yeah I, I think um the way I had it I've had it explained to me is that uh, Marcus Smart they said he's the like you said before he's the heart and soul of the team but he's also kind of the alpha male he 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 takes a lot of shots in very close games, and there are a lot of times where it's like Jason Tatum, who should be the leader, kind of deferred to Marcus Smart at times, which isn't good. Because although Marcus Smart was a defensive player of the year, he's also not a a very good shooter at all. So they, I think this is kind of about trying to keep bring control back in a way to Joe Mazzula and uh, Jason Tatum. So I mean, Kristaps Porzingis, he did average almost exactly as many points per game as Bradley Beal did last year. He also gave you some post defense and some rebounding that being said though it's gonna be weird trying to balance robert williams al horford and porzingis yeah i that's the main part of it i've never been a big fan of porzingis i know he had a really good uh start to his career in new york and then kind of injuries uh derailed his career a little bit but uh i I mean he, he played well uh last season um and you, you never know. I, I, it could work out, but I, I think that was. I wouldn't consider that a, a winning move at all, though. At least for them, like the Celtics, I think that's just kind of like keeps them where they're at, and yeah. they're not really progressing. Like I, I don't think that's gonna advance their team a whole lot more compared to last season. I, I understand that point. I, I think well, it's more that the the East is very weak this year. That's true. I, well, they're still gonna be like in that top category, yeah. but as far as like they're composition of their team I think was a lot of defensive focused and then you bring in Porzingis who I wouldn't call a good defender okay um so I that kind of confused me like he doesn't really fit the team that well in my mind like I don't I mean you never know I I trust like the NBA coaches and and, like the franchise (laughs) that like does it for a living to to know better than I would but at the same time like I'm not really sure how they're going to make it work so and just be something interesting to look at and I mean it wasn't a move that I really loved and I was kind of happy about it so I want like at least from a Bucks fan perspective all right yeah fair enough I guess when I saw the the Jeremy Grant deal switching gears here my my eyes almost popped out of their eye sockets they gave him five years 160 million dollars I I really have no clue what they were thinking with this one outside of well maybe Dame can come back I I just I don't understand what they were thinking there. I don't understand it either, and I've heard people speculate that they did it just to fully get Dame out. Like, here anything that we could have done, like we're done, like we can't do it anymore. Like, boom, like here you go. That, that's all you're getting now. Like, if well, you're saying you they want would out, they would give a guy five years just to tell their star player <laughs> that they purposely gave a guy a bad deal, well, or maybe they found out that Dame didn't want to stay, and then they did it. It's probably the other way around. It's probably well, that. Uh, I, I, in my my personal opinion is that they gave him the deal in the hopes that they could try and build something around Dame, but it didn't work. And now they're stuck with what I think but will then, be a very bad contract. Yeah, once you put all the that much of an asset, like yeah. that much money into into a player, like he becomes like 
your second player on your team. Like you, especially now with like the the way the cap set up, like you can't go anywhere else with that. Like he is the player you ha- like have to build around, and he has yeah. to be a part of that team. So it's gonna be like I to me at least, it, it seems like they realized that they weren't gonna have a Dame anymore, and they thought we just have to fill the cap somehow. Like we have a young team with smaller contracts, let's just put the money somewhere. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I understand that point. You need a guy who's salary filler, but five years—that's the part that makes me raise my eyebrows a little bit. Um, what did you think about uh, the Russ signing? I know that's one of your favorite players. Oh, I thought it was a great bargain for them. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure how he'll react to having a diminished role, but I, I'm still very excited to see what happens. Um, I think. Uh, you probably argue that's the best bargain signing. Uh, I would agree. What players are expected to get what they wound up getting. Do you think that's like a a prove it deal or just kind of like on his way no, out? I don't like think he's contracts. proving anything. I think yeah. he just loves Los Angeles. That's where his family lives. He's a, a big family guy. I think he's like, you know what? It was great being here. There's a new arena coming to Los Angeles. Let's just hang out here and have some fun. Because I'm sure that when you're a guy who just made $46 million, the difference between making $4 million a year and $10 million a year is – not very much to him. Especially when you don't have the championship. Like, that's really no. what you're looking for. <laughs> I, I'm assuming that's part of it, too. Like, yeah. I don't know what other team he could have moved over to while well, still factoring that. I mean, obviously, L.A. Yeah. Trying to stay there. but yeah. well, Oh, I'm sorry. I am saying it, we are running out of time a little oh, bit. Oh, no. Uh, okay, so yeah. why don't we jump ahead to my personal favorite segment, story time okay Uh, this was great last time we basically we didn't have a ton of stuff to talk about so we decided to just find some old stories uh from the past and last i'm gonna try and do this without laughing like last time uh just an image of i think what was it last year you talked about the jr smith soup incident which is very funny yes i Um, I thought yours was better though (laughs) uh, i I just i kept laughing because uh i just it was 10 cent beer night and being a big riot and i just imagined billy martin leading his team onto the field like a big charge like aragorn (laughs) at the black gates and lord of the rings just a great mental image however i'm I'm feeling very good about my i go first right uh yes you do okay so i i'm I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get through this without bursting out laughing because this one had me laughing probably more than the other one. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so it's July 15th, 1994. We are at Kaminsky Park in Chicago. This is another baseball story. Uh, Cleveland right now is 51-34. and 34. They're facing the White Sox, who right now are clinging to a two-game division lead. This is where the postseason was smaller as well, so you kind of had to beat your division f- foe to get in, even though the – Cleveland was really good. They were. It was kind of a neck-and-neck neck race at this point. So Albert Bell is batting in the top of the first, and he's in the midst of a career year right now. By the end of the year, he would hit 357 with 38 homers and 101 RBIs. The kickers, they did it in just 106 games, which is incredible. That's like a running back running for 1,400 yards and missing the last five games. It's it just like Derrick Henry's injury. Yes, like that. Yeah. That's a great example. Uh, Bell is a really fearsome guy. He is six foot two, 220 pounds. He's known as a, a crazy, rebellious, and kind of unintelligent guy. He once punched a thermostat in the clubhouse because the room was too hot, which kind of feels like the equivalent of destroying your computer because you didn't get the email you wanted. Uh, the following year on Halloween, Bell would discover his house was being egged by some teenagers, so he decided to go Batman mode. He hopped into his uh, sports, it said sports vehicle. That makes me think four-wheeler. And he decided to chase down the kids. He wound up getting sued. Lawsuit was uh, settled out of court. So basically, Bell is known around the league as a pretty 
scary guy, but for Cleveland, he's also known as a cheater because he is known for corking his bat within the clubhouse. Do you know what that means? Yes, uh, that's what you hollow out the bat, put cork in there, and it's supposed to make it go farther. Yeah, it's supposed to make it look like a, a trampoline kind of thing, like it or a spring. Like it, it hits it, and then it kind of like bat would compress in a little bit, and then shoots it out farther. However, uh, I I could tell you you were starting to butt there. I found an old uh, MythBusters episode where they actually tested if the cork bat helped, and they argued that they not argued. They discovered that if you swing at the same speed, the cork bat actually gives you worse contact. Uh, and it's more fragile, isn't it? Too? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If it breaks open, you just can see clear as day what's inside of there. Another thing is that um, I found a, a legitimate study from a scientific group that studied it as well because the other arguments that you can swing it faster. And basically, they came to the conclusion after a bunch of physics stuff that, look, if if you're going to cheat in baseball, this is not the way to do it. Uh, any Any advantage that you get is pretty negligible. So that being said, league circles are starting to figure out that Bell is kind of a sleazy guy. So when he comes up to bat, White Sox manager Gene Lamont asked the umpires to inspect Bell's bat. Uh, This is a legitimate rule. We actually just saw it happen the other day where the national manager uh, asked the umpires to inspect the bat of Ellie De La Cruz, a guy who stole a zillion base against the Brewers. Um, So umpire Dave Phillips... Phillips looks at the bat and thinks something might be off, but he's not sure. For a quick tangent, Phillips is actually a really respected official who in 2004 would become the first umpire inducted into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. So good for him. On their website, they said he joined umpiring school in 1964, and he finished third in his class. My takeaway was there's an umpire school. There's a school for umpires. That's pretty crazy. Um, I guess it worked out pretty well for him. He became, he became an, an MLB umpire in 1971 at the age of 28, and he was a crew chief by 1979. By the time this game happened, he had, he had already umpired four World Series games, so he knows what's up. Basically, he knows that he's not sure if it's good or not, but he kind of knows that Bell's kind of a, a sketchy dude. So he orders the bat to be locked inside the umpire's locker room where the league can look at it later. And a, like a cloud of dismay goes over Cleveland because they know they're about to lose their best player. I mean, they know full well this that bat is almost certainly corked, and they're about to lose the guy who they're going to need to make the playoffs. So the gears start turning in the head of Cleveland relief pitcher Jason Grimsley, and he talks with some teammates, and he comes up with a plan. He takes, he goes into the clubhouse, and he takes off his uniform. He puts on his street clothes. Uh, he grabs the bat of first baseman Paul Sorrento, whose bat looks similar to Bell's. Then he goes into his manager's office, climbs up on the desk, and goes into the ceiling. He climbs in the ceiling like Mission Impossible. He then navigates into the official's locker room, opens the locker, grabs Bell's bat, and replaces it with Paul Sorrento. He then climbs back into the ceiling to his clubhouse and becomes like an instant hero for his teammates because they thought he just saved his guy a, a, a big suspension. Uh, so what would you think of his, just the general idea of what, what he did there? Of like Mission Impossible climbing yes. to the ceiling of the clubhouse? I it sounds like something that would happen in a dream, maybe, or just like a movie or something like that. Like, how did he not fall through the ceiling? Like, was it just like those little, like, because the ceiling above yeah, it was like, like ceiling tile, tile, like at a, a school, but I think it was tougher back then. It was made with, I think it might have been made with asbestos. Um, anyways, uh, so it turns out that there's a couple of problems with Grimsley's plan, uh, and it was basically a disaster when all the details fall into place. The umpire's room was just down the hall from the visiting locker room, so Grimley uh, did some reconnaissance ahead of time to figure out where it was. He estimates it's 100 feet away. So, And he also said later on in this interview he did later on, 
he said it took him about 40 minutes to reach the locker room, which I did some, I brought the TI-83 calculator and I found he moved at 2.5 feet per minute or 0.03 miles an hour. And for reference, sloths move at 6.5 feet per minute. So he basically had no clue what was going on up there. Uh, at one point he thought he knew, he thought he was in the right room, so he opened up the top and it wound up being a break room for the groundskeepers. And this guy just looks up and sees this relief pitcher overhead who gives him like the, the shh sign. And the the guy doesn't wind up showing up later in the story, so I guess he, he did not snitch. Um, but basically, the, the real crime comes in when the umpire, or Dave Phillips' crew, comes back into the locker room, and they did not actually have to call Sherlock Holmes to see that something happened in there. Uh, they found <laughs> broken ceiling tiles. <laughs> uh, there's dust everywhere, and there's shoe prints on the ground. So it's basically Scooby-Doo. Uh so Phillips goes into the locker and immediately realizes that the bat is not Albert Bell's. And this is my favorite part. He figures it out for two reasons. First of all, the bat looks gross. Uh, it's all dusty and worn and not the one that was used from Bell's, who was just shiny and unused for the game. The second one part, the real reason he knew, is that Paul Sorrento, the guy whose bat was used for the switcheroo, had his name stamped on the side of the bat. <laughs> So he just trashed. <laughs> yes, the- he. he <laughs> so this guy climbed in a ceiling with a bat that he didn't even see had a dude's name on it. Scuffed it up on around. his way over. He, yep, he, he scuffed up the ceiling. He he really messed up the umpire's room based off of what I saw. He put and he, it didn't occur to him whatsoever to look at the bat or cover his tracks at all. He just left a trail of destruction in his mist. So the MLB takes this very seriously. They rope off the room, and a former FBI agent is flown in. Uh, they, they analyze the fingerprints. They got, like, the, the swabs. They look for DNA and stuff. And the MLB tells Cleveland that you need to give us the bat, or we're going to get the real FBI in here. We're going to charge you with burgul- burglary. My gosh, I can never say that word. So Cleveland gives up the bat, and two days later, the bat is x-rayed and sawed open. In front of Albert Bell and the Cleveland GM. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, it's corked. What, how many games would you suspend Bell for corking a bat? So there's probably a precedent for that already, but I'm just going to guess like 20 games. 20. Okay, he got 10 and was reduced to 7. Hmm. Uh, how many games would you suspend Jason Grimsley for climbing through the ceiling dropping in the umpire's room and making a complete mess of a ton of stuff. I think that is probably lower, right? Like what? So he, the, the court bat gave him 10. That I'm just going to go 10 as well for that. Then. 10? Grimsley received no penalty. No penalty? No penalty. They just told him to stay quiet because the league was kind of embarrassed about it. Well, so they just said, be quiet. And then when he retired, he gave an excellent interview about the whole ordeal. If <laughs> Just unbelievable. I would think that, I mean, worst case scenario, all he did was make himself look like an idiot <laughs> and trash the stadium a little bit or, like, parts yeah. of the stadium. Yeah. Like, I mean, not the end of the world there. Uh, but the co-working and the bat, I, I, yeah. I, I would guess that they'd be more mad about that because it's, like, cheating in the game. And, like, that actually, like, matters for, like, oh, like, integrity of the game. But, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> You have, just have some like dumb relief pitcher that thinks nobody's gonna notice his big lump moving across the ceiling. 
Imagine you're just in the hallway and just like, what's that? It's like, oh, yeah, it's just a relief pitcher. 2.5 feet per minute. Per minute. He, I mean. How do you even move that moving. slow? You said there were like pipes and stuff up there, but uh, come on. He can't be that slow, right? I, I wonder if he exaggerated. I hope so. Uh, there was another source that said it was about his entire trick trip took about four innings, which in that time would be just about an hour and a half. So why didn't he just wait for the umpire to leave his room, go in there, swap the bat? Well, the door was leave. locked. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But so you can climb through a ceiling, but you can't pick a lock. Well, okay. Which That's is like harder? Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Oh no, climbing through the ceiling would be easier than trying to pick a lock. You think so? Oh yeah, especially with no internet back then. Oh, true. I'm thinking like nowadays. Like... <laughs> Plus, you can't just stand outside there. And like, I'm also imagining it'd be like a movie where like you just take a hairpin out and just stick it in the lock. <laughs> it's like boom, good to go, guys. Oh gosh. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead with your story then? <laughs> All right. So I'll try and make mine quick here. Um, oh, you, you don't have to. On April 27th of 2014, exactly 60 years after Robert Bannister broke the four-minute mile, uh, and that was something that was long thought to be physically impossible, uh, there was a name, a man named uh, James Nielsen who did something arguably more impressive. Uh, he broke the five-minute beer mile. Uh, <laughs> so for our listeners who don't know what a beer mile is, uh, that's when someone runs an entire mile uh, while consuming a beer uh, each quarter lap or each quarter mile lap. Um, so leading up to his attempt to break his record, uh, John Nielsen cut no corners. He researched how to properly displace the CO2 buildup from his chugging uh, while running, uh, scientifically figured out how to uh, the proper temperature to keep his beers at while um, attempting this record, and then also uh, honed his chugging and running abilities. Um, I should also mention that uh, John was over the age of 21 and had a designated driver to take him home from the track for this Good attempt. For um, and he also doesn't recommend anyone else uh, try and attempt this for themselves. <laughs> uh, just got to throw that out there. Um, so to start the race, John pounded a beer in just under six seconds. Wait, uh, how how big does a beer have to be? Just a normal 12-ounce okay. beer. Yeah. Uh, and you, so the, the, the way it'll work is you chug a beer – run a lap and there's a 10-yard range that you have uh, at the start of the lap to finish that beer within. Oh, um, so you can't run and chug. No, you're you not running and chug. You and chug. chug the beer oh, and then you wow. run the lap. Um, yeah, so he th- he has a video on this and he, he goes into uh, some detail on like all the rules within the, the beer mile world uh, and he wanted to make sure that nobody could uh, say that um, – Nobody can give him an asterisk at all. So uh, he made sure to follow everything to a T. Uh, he ran at an average of uh, one minute and uh, 12 seconds uh, per lap, uh, chugged between six to 10 seconds uh, per beer, uh, and finished in f- uh, four minutes and uh, 57 seconds, uh, setting a record. Um, and I mean, he looked like he was in horrible shape <laughs> afterwards like he was just exhausted like hands sure on his knees like looked like he, he kind of wanted to throw up but he didn't um but i mean you got to be pretty proud of yourself for that but just wow. an all time i mean just putting human spirit on display right there so um yeah i think we we have to go uh right now so uh thank you guys all for uh tuning what in a way to this. end it the, Asyn- beer mile. <laughs> the asynchronous edition of after further review uh um, yeah. Any any last thoughts here? Uh, thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day. We'll can't wait to be back in the studio live in the coming fall. So yeah. stay tuned.